This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Sam Vega, birthday. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Nikki Bath from the LGBTI Health Alliance talks about the census. We also speak with Noah Reisman about his research about the trans community's history in Australia. And later, release Saudi asylum seeker Sultan talks about his release and his new life in Australia with his partner Nassar. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Well, the federal government has released its consultation about the 2021 Australian census with no questions about sexuality or the gender diverse and intersex communities. On the line, we have Nikki Bath from the LGBTI Health Alliance who has been campaigning on the issue. Nikki, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks so much for having me back. It's great to talk to you. Nikki, what questions does the federal government wish to ask about the LGBTIQ community in the census? Well, the only question that um, remains in the census is a change to the question that was in the 2016 uh, census, where there was a question around male, female and other, which you may remember um, created some controversy. They've replaced other with non-binary. And apart from that change to the 2021 census, there are no questions being proposed to go into the census with regards to... Uh, gender, sexuality and intersex data. What questions should it be asking? I imagine there's quite a few. Yeah, so the questions themselves are still um, are still under development in some ways. I mean, I think it's important to understand the process, really. The Alliance, some of your, of your listeners will know, has been campaigning and working with the ABS for over two years now with regard to the inclusion of these questions. And we have been really focused on getting the categories around gender, sexuality and intersex status into the regulation for the census. And where we're up to at the moment is the um, Treasury has a consultation process around the 2021 census, which is focused on looking at the questions that have been put forward to be included for the first time, which is a chronic health question and a veterans question. And we're using this process to be able to raise again the need to have those gender, sex and sexuality questions that are appropriate into the census. And those questions would be able to then record, you know, gender, sex, sexuality and, and intersex status. So we're, we're way away, in a sense, from what those exactly what those questions would look like because we were still working with the ABS on, with them. But, yes, it's really now a case of us guns the blazing and getting in there and making sure that we have as many people as possible contributing to this consultation. I imagine it's pretty important funding purposes to have uh, desirable questions asked about the LGBTIQ community so that we can be counted properly and therefore proper provisions can be made for services, for example, around health and, and, and welfare. Totally, and that's one of the major reasons as to why we need to have these questions in the census. Many services across the country 
use the questions in the census and, of course, the data that comes from it in all of their service planning. And at the moment, the census doesn't tell us anything about our community. So services are desperate for this information, as well as, you know, communities themselves and individuals. And our joint statement that your listeners can see on our website now has over 125 organisations many of those being national peak organisations themselves, which increases that number of individual organisations, all calling for the need to have this data. Because we also need to be able to understand the demographics of our communities, where our communities are living. There's a whole range of, there's a whole range of reasons as to why we need to have the, the questions included. And of course, there's so many components of the LGBTIQ community that are emerging. So it's totally necessary that there's data recorded about them so the government can actually understand the community better in order to plan for its future. That's absolutely correct. And our communities are emerging and changing all of the time. And that's why we have a census. The census takes place so that we can understand how society is changing. And this, you know, the questionnaire itself needs to change in light of that. And in uh, 2021, when we're making these decisions in 2019-2020, the government that is, um, but I would like to think by 2021 at least, I think Australia is very much ready to have those questions in the census. Absolutely. So you've been working with the ABS for two years. Is there a gulf between what the ABS would like to ask about the LGBTIQ community and what the government kind of is proposing? Well, it appears um, that the processes to date have been a bit confusing. Um, We know that the um, ABS have made the recommendation to the government uh, not to include these questions at this time due to them being sensitive and risky. And yet they've also advised the government to make the decision decision themselves due to the strong and consistent support from so many people, including, you know, the Department of Social Services, the Department of Health and all of those organisations I just spoke about. So it's a bit it's a bit confusing really. But with regard to the ABS itself, it's important to say that we we continue to have a good relationship with them and that's important for us moving forward, whether these questions get into the census or not because we, can, we need to continue to work with them on a whole range of other issues and projects and research that they um, undertake. What's your response to uh, that view that those questions are sensitive and risky? I mean, that seems to be awfully uh, exaggerated to me. It kind of seems like it's stigmatising the community and kind of marginalising us in ways that are totally unnecessary. I, I totally agree. And we know from um, information that was gained through freedom of information submissions that have been put into the public arena that there was significant acceptability of these questions through the focus groups and cognitive testing that was undertaken and that these these questions didn't provide any additional um, response burden onto the completion of the census. And I think that, as I said previously, I think these, these are, well, these are standard questions. They're just standard demographic questions in the same way that other demographic questions have asked the population in a whole array of settings. And, you know, that those boxes are there for us to tick. If they mean nothing to anybody else, don't tick the box, but they're really important boxes for us to tick. Absolutely. So in terms of like censuses in other countries, in Western Europe and North America, for example, are are they more comprehensive with the questions that they ask? What we know is that the inclusion of these questions in census across 
um, at the international level is emerging. And we know that the UK and New Zealand are currently working to include these questions. And I know for the UK, their next run of the census is in 2021. Wow. OK. And uh, what about your discussions with the federal government directly? For example, have you been liaising with Michael Sukar, who I understand is the assistant minister in charge of this census process? So we have been having continual conversations with his office. Unfortunately, despite several attempts, we have not been able to meet with him in person, um, but we have met with one of his advisors regularly to continue to put our case forward and to continue to provide the evidence as to why we need these questions included. And we will continue to do that as we move forward with the process, which is, of course, very tight. I mean, the Treasury process is open until the 10th of January, and we understand that the regulation will be in, in front of Parliament for for that process to be completed in the middle of February. The fact that Michael Sukar's had an advisor meeting with you regularly sounds encouraging. What have the tones of those discussions been like? Um, Well, the tone has always been very open and listening to what we have to say and engaging with us, you know, asking good questions. I... I don't don't know where that information has gone, to be frank, and it's been very uh, disappointing for us that we haven't been able to have a face-to-face meeting with Minister Suka. I think it's important that, given that he has oversight of the census, that we are able to meet with him. It's his his decision Um, now. The decision lies with him so that we can put our case forward face-to-face and be able to that I listen to his concerns and address them. And sadly, we haven't been afforded that opportunity. If people listening are wanting to contribute to this consultation, first of all, uh, what sort of things would you recommend that they said to the government about the need for our inclusion in the census? Like if people need a bit of guidance, what advice can you give them? Well, we've, we've actually created a, a template document that's on our website to assist people to be able to engage in the process. That's available at our our website, um, which is www.lgbtihealth.org.au. And um, if you go forward slash into hub, you'll be able to go into the page that will um, have all of the information, explains the process and the response and the template letters there, as well as the email address for the um, submission to go in. And look, even if it's just a couple of sentences that people send in to say personally why it's important, there's so many reasons and people have lots of different reasons as to why those boxes are important for us to be able to tick. I know that some politicians have been, been contacted by older members of our community who have gone there saying, this is likely to be my last census, and I really want to be able to tick that box and see myself in Australian society in the way of others. Other people are really committed around the data and all of the information around service provision, and the in, you know the insights that the census will be able to give us. The important thing is if people are comfortable that they do not put confidential onto their submission, um, because all submissions will then be placed for the public record on the Treasury website. And we really, really hope that we get as many submissions as possible, showing how much this means to our communities, our allies, and our stakeholders and partners that work with us to improve our health and to reduce those health disparities. Absolutely. And the turnaround time, of course, as you said, is very tight, isn't it? Because the consultation ends on the 10th of January. It's very tight and a very unfortunate time of year, given that we're all, you know, many people are going on holiday and on Christmas break. But as I say, if you're out having a swim and you get out of the water, take some as you're drying off, take some time to put in that submission. You're a bit full, you've eaten too much one day, take a rest. 
fill in, you know, write a letter, get that submission in, and let's really show how determined we are as a community with our allies and stakeholders to get those questions into the census. Absolutely. Nikki Barr, thanks so much for talking to us today on 3CR. Keep us posted and have an awesome Christmas and New Year. You too. And thank you, everyone, for the support that you've given to the Alliance this year. We really, really appreciate it. Awesome stuff. Thanks, Nikki. Cheers. Cheers, James. Bye-bye. Jennifer's body, you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, joined by Dr. Noel Reisman to get an update about your amazing research about the history of the trans community in Australia and your book, which of course is going to be the product of it all. Oh, well, to keep the book's a few years away, don't get everyone's hopes up, but yeah, no, the project's going very, very well. I mean, like many other things, I'm sort of juggling multiple balls in this project and multiple projects at the same time, but um, when was I last year? Was it October? October. I think October. Yeah, look, I think when I was last year, I had just gotten back from WA, so WA was very fresh in my head. Um, since then, I guess I'd say there's sort of two big things I've been looking at. Um, and one is New South Wales, but especially in the 1990s. So I've had the the privilege, the fortune, the luck of interviewing a few of the activists who were really involved in Sydney in the 1990s, the most prominent being Nori, who many people may have heard of. Nori, Yes, yes Nori... Um, in 2014, so years later, Nori was the subject of a case that went to the High Court that led to a ruling that said it was within the right of the New South Wales Registry of Birth, Deaths, and Marriages to, to register no gender. So it's often said Nori was the world's first recognized non-binary person. That's not actually true. There were others recognized before Nori. But I've interviewed Nori and a few other activists from the 1990s in Sydney, like A.D. Griffin and my God, the stories they tell. Sydney, Sydney slash New South Wales, in many ways, they were ahead of the game. But also because of some of the ways they were ahead of the game, it led to some serious fights, um, battles within the trans community um, in the 1990s. Do you want me to elaborate yes, more? Or did you want yes. to ask a question? No, no, I really want to know about these so, intense community disputes. Yeah, well, I mean, well, the big split which was going on in Sydney, and, and to an extent this was going on globally in the trans community, was the, the, the fights between pre-op and post-op. Um, between those trans people who had had or were intending to have gender affirmation surgery and those who weren't. And and so, uh, actually, there's like multiple intersecting battles going on in New South Wales in the 90s where, where Nori and Aidy were very much uh, leading the charge was they were very much arguing that we need to like reconceptualize gender as a whole and not be so obsessed with the body and not see it as embodied. And they were arguing, they were arguing about non-binary. They were arguing, you know, for, for being able to, to be one gender, another gender, changing genders, not having a gender, having all genders. Things that, you know, 25 years later now, yes, these are things still being fought over, but nowadays it's more so between the right wing and, and, and progressives rather than sort of within a community. They were advocating this in the 90s. But some of the battles that were going on is... um. I want to say it was either 1991 or 1992 that there was a group set up. It sort of sprung out of the gender center in Sydney called the Transgender Liberation Coalition. It went through a few name changes. At one stage, it was the Transgender Liberation uh, Council. Like It always had the acronym TLC. It always had transgender and liberation. And they chose the word transgender, which nowadays we use much more commonly. But that was actually quite a new 
the word existed before then, but it was quite new to use that word. And they were consciously doing it because of them wanting to challenge these ideas about the body and this idea that you have to have surgery to be someone who's changed their gender or who's affirming their gender in different ways. And TLC, very much they were fighting for that. They were fighting within the gender center to try and demedicalize understandings of transgender. So very much the model at that time was that, you know, if you had if you your gender identity and your body didn't align you saw a psychiatrist they diagnose you you go through this two-year waiting process you live in your firm gender you get hormones you have surgery and then you disappear into the world that was the sort of medical model that was very dominant globally it was dominant in australia it was dominant at the gender center they were challenging that and this led to some serious fights because there were a lot of trans people who liked that model um who very much did believe that it was about having surgery, who did believe it was about um, then disappearing into society. Um, And so there was this rival group that was set up a few years later called Transsexual Action Group, or TAG. And yeah, they had some spats. Um, Quite a few spats. I've read a few of the spats in some of um, the Gender Center's literature, where there were letters to to the editor being written by each. And from what um, I did interview one person who was involved as TAG as well, and it got really nasty and really personal. But where a lot of this becomes important is that they're also advocating for New South Wales to adopt anti-discrimination laws and to legalize a, a way for changing birth certificates and recognizing people in their firm gender. And even, it starts with they very much get the support of Clover Moore, who's the independent member for Sydney. And Clover did introduce a bill in 1994, a private member's bill. At the time, the Liberals were in government. When Labour won the election in, I believe, 1995 in New South Wales, um, very much you had TLC advocating to to sort of adopt Clover's bill but change it. And they were pushing for – so this bill was going to do two things, both introduce anti-discrimination protection for trans people as well as bring in a process of of recognizing their firm gender, changing birth certificates. And what TLC were pushing back in 1995, 1996, and they did work with the Labour Party. The Labour Party was on board. Their biggest ally was the then Attorney General, Jeff Shaw. And Clover Moore agreed to this. They said, you know, now that it would be better coming from Labour Party, and Clover was fine with that. Clover was on board. Um, they were very much pushing what is sort of being pushed now, what Victoria just passed, of you shouldn't have to have surgery to get your birth certificate amended. This other group, TAG, did not like that. So you actually had trans people who in Sydney in the 90s were fighting, saying, no, it has to be about surgery to change a birth certificate. It should have to be surgery. So these fights were playing out a bit in the trans community. One thing I should say is these groups were always small. Like we say groups, they sound like they're a big organization. TLC didn't have much of a bigger membership than about 20 people. And really it was a core of about three people, Nori, AD, and one other person who's since passed away. were sort of the core running the joint. And this group tag, from what I can gather, was really basically three people. So you have these groups that have these names that sound like they're very big and representative, but they're actually quite small. Um, The way that these debates are playing out, eventually TAG did wind up influencing the process, and they had one particular ALP politician on side that would not let it go through without birth certificates being uh, tied to surgery. So in the end... That is what wound up happening. So 1996, the New South Wales Parliament did pass anti-discrimination laws, and it did pass what I, I tend to refer to as the first round of birth certificate reform, which said that you could get your birth certificate amended if you'd had gender affirmation surgery. In New South Wales, it was the Labour Party was on board. 
to get it through the upper house, they had the support of the Greens, the Democrats. Um, so they had the minor parties to get it through the upper house. Liberals and nationals opposed it, which is different from Victoria. I think I talked about this last time about about you know four years later, Victoria, the Libs and the Nats, um, they they didn't oppose it. But I mean, just hearing those stories, and there was, I mean, in 1996, there was a big fight over the the um, the direction of the gender center, um, which for the most part has been a support service for trans people. But again, there was this fight over this this medical model, and there were there was a particular meeting where one of the people who was on the board of the gender center didn't allow. I believe it was Nori. It was either Nori or Adi. I think it was Nori. Wouldn't let Nori speak at a meeting. And then this blew into a big eruption over the fight of the future of the gender center. And you then had an election at the AGM where you had the sort of TLC aligned candidates. And then the, I suppose you'd say, not not tag, but the medical aligned candidates. And in the end, the, the TLC aligned candidates got one more person on the board. And so it very much did reshape the direction of the gender center that it wasn't going to be just about supporting people as they go through surgery, but but being about, you know, there are many ways to express your gender. There are many ways to express your identity. And, you know, there's not one model that we're going to push. So, and that really came out of these changes in the 1990s. And like so many other activists, one thing that, that came out of, especially the interview with AD, is that very much after that, a lot of the activists I've interviewed, regardless of state, with exceptions, after about three years, they very much burn out. After that change, AD very much sort of stepped away and, and hasn't really been involved in the activist community since. Nori, on the other hand, has, has kept on going and is still going strong, fighting the good fight. I keep seeing photos of Nori on Facebook with a big um, big gas mask to you know emphasize all <laughs> the, the climate change, the problems going on in Sydney. But, I mean, that's been sort of one strand of research, that, as you can hear from my voice and just narrating it, just listening to these people and also reading all the old newspaper articles. I mean, seeing their spats in the LGBT press, it's just... Yeah, it's really, it's really, I mean, I don't know if I should be laughing, but it's just really interesting seeing these spats that they were having within the community, but quite publicly. These were not being kept internally. And so actually another thing that, that came out from the interviews with both AD and Nori was there were also tensions with the LGB community. And actually, I should say LG community. One thing Nori very much was talking about was they had to fight to get bisexual recognized by the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras at the time as sort of like an acceptable group that could be members and they had to fight to get trans recognized and these spats they were were playing out as well and and ultimately i think the way 80 put it was to sort of try and like because nori could be quite quite confrontational i say that in a good way like i actually say a good way but it was almost like to get them off their back they kind of the the new south wales gay lesbian rights lobby kind of went quiet so they didn't stand in the way but there were also those fights being played out as well, where the gay and lesbian community wasn't necessarily on board with this trans agenda until it had to be really like, no, this is... The, I think the way that it would be framed is, of course, your sexuality and your gender identity are not the same thing, and we still say that. But the oppression that you face is the oppression we face, and we need to face that oppression together. So the the TLC especially was very much trying to push those alliances, but they ran into opposition from the gay and lesbian community as well. Now, of course, here in Victoria, you've recently made a very exciting discovery dating back to 1976 about a petition for birth certificate I reform. came across this last week through an old newspaper article. So I had thought, and I think I spoke about this a few months ago, that the earliest push for birth certificate reform in Victoria was in the early 80s. Now, I came across a report in the newspaper and then chased it up in the Hansard. November 1976, a small group called the 
committee for, oh, I think it was committee for legitimization of the sexually reassigned. And I, I have to do more homework. I don't know what this group was. Um, had a petition of 315 people who, and it went to the local member for Footscray, Robert Fordham, labor member who would later go on, was an opposition at the time, but would later go on to be deputy premier in the King government. He presented this petition to the parliament, which was calling for the Victorian government to amend um, its birth certificate legislation to allow, again, post-op people, it was 1976, but to allow people to change their birth certificates. So that fight, which just finally culminated in the legislation a few months ago, that goes back even further than we thought. I thought it went to the early 80s, goes to 76 at least. So it obviously was pretty readily dismissed by the then Hamer government in 1976. What were some of the reactions in Parliament that you came across? From what I can see, there weren't. So I've I've been searching Hansard, and so what I found was it, it briefly got a mention in the press, just that this petition was presented. And in the press, Fordham, who presented it, said in an interview that he was hoping it would be put on the agenda to be debated the following year. From what I can tell, it never was. So from what I can see, he presented this petition. He read out the petition. And then, that, I mean, petitions are presented to Parliament all the time. From what I can tell, that was it. So there wasn't there wasn't really a reaction. And that's, I mean, I think it was, I, I don't know enough about Fordham. But, I mean, I think that was quite progressive of him to present that petition. But also, it seems like it wasn't necessarily a priority that he kept on pushing obviously, because didn't see anything come of it after that. Tell us about some of the uh, really interesting kind of personal journeys that you've discovered. I know there was one uh, dating back to the Anglican Church, I think it was here in Richmond in the oh, early 80s, yes. with a trans person who transitioned and there was they were forced to leave their parish. Yeah, so I only came across this last week as well, and I, I don't know this person. I haven't interviewed this person, and I'm not going to say their name, but this came from the press. So again, this was in the media. Um it was about 1980, if memory serves, but it was an Anglican priest who transitioned from male to female and then left the church. But what was interesting in the press was that it was actually quite affirming. It was quite – I mean, there were even letters to the editor from people who knew the priest and were quite supportive of her. And, you know, said it's really, really sad that she's had to go. She's been really good, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, – forget the name of the church, but it's in Burnley. It's still there. I quickly Googled it. It's still there. Um, This Anglican parish in Burnley that, yeah, I I, I need to do more on this, but it it was all over the press when it happened. And there have been a few other stories that pop up in the media every now and again of a priest who transitioned, um, often a Catholic priest. Um, Usually not necessarily in Australia, though. So seeing that this wasn't just Australia, it was Melbourne, it was local, it was Victoria. I was like, wow, I didn't know this. Do you think you will be interviewing them? I don't know. Look, I mean, if I can track them down and if they're interested, I would love to. Often names that come up in the press in the sort of early 80s or 70s, I do try and track them down. But often the name that they may have taken when they first transitioned, they don't. They may have since changed their name. They might not be interested. And I totally respect that 100%. So they might not even be alive. We don't know. I mean, a lot of unknowns. But again, just came across that case last week in some old newspaper articles. And have you been doing interviews with people from the community over the last couple of months uh, here in Victoria that have been sharing their stories? Uh, Victoria, since I last saw you. I don't think I have in Victoria since I last saw you. Just those few in New South Wales. Um, Because I I was on a holiday also in the last few months. I haven't just been in the country and doing other stuff. No, not in Victoria, not since since the last week. What about interstate apart from New South Wales? Since October, no. I mean, before October, I'd done Queensland, WA. I think I'd mentioned before. Um, eight, 
No, I did do one or two in ACT. Sorry, I did do two in the ACT since I last spoke to you. Can you talk about them at all? Uh, Sure. Well, I mean, one is a very long-term trans activist who's been in the ACT. He he set up the group that's now uh, still around Agender Agenda. Um, I can say his name. He's quite open. Um, Peter Hindle, and he, you know, his story is quite interesting about the the challenges he had to face tra- um, transitioning and also some of the other difficulties he had sort of having previously lived as a lesbian and then when he transitioned how the community some members were still welcoming to him but others not so much and he talked a bit about his his family relationship I don't think I should go into too much um, having not cleared all of that with him yet but he did talk about founding of a gender agenda because Canberra um, they'd had a seahorse group for a very long time. Um, and they have a group now, and I interviewed the president of the group, and I've already forgotten. Canberra, I think they're called Canberra Transgender. Oh, my God, I forgot the name of the group. But it's sort of, um, it's primarily for people who like to who dress, so similar to Seahorse, but it's got a different name. Um, so he set up a gender agenda to be, again, both an activist and an advocacy and a support place for trans people in Canberra. And he set that up in 2009, and it's still running strong um, as sort of the main... I use the word main loosely, the the main sort of lobbying group in ACT. They work very closely with the ACT government on a lot of issues as well. He also has since stepped back from the activism. Again, just burnout. It happens. I mean, I don't say that in a critical way. Like, I tip my hat to activists, especially to the ones who do it for such a long period of time. And yet the other person in Canberra is someone who, she is the the, the president of that, that other group uh, that I was mentioning that's similar to Seahorse. And, um, you know, also a very interesting life. And, you know, she actually lives her life both male and female she she lives some of the time presenting as female um and she presents some of the time as male and she's she's found a way that you know that is what works for her um i'm using the pronoun her because when i interviewed her that that she was presenting as female so that's the pronoun i'm using um you know and i mean there are a lot of people that you know they they present in different ways and identify in different ways and because gender isn't necessarily you know fixed it can be fluid bingo bingo but not just fluid it could be multiple it could be multiple. Actually, I think, was it that? Was it? No, it, the interview with AD, this was very interesting. When I interviewed AD Griffin, I asked AD at the very beginning of the interview, well, actually, before we started, I said, what pronouns would you like me to use? And AD said, I don't care whatever you want. And I said, well, no, it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. And AD genuinely wouldn't give me an answer, didn't care. So I'm trying not to even use pronouns when it comes to AD. But I think... It was interesting because AD very much, as I said earlier in the interview, has been challenging understandings of gender for 25 years. And I was even saying to AD, I don't know if you realize it now, AD, but you were way ahead of the game. Like, you know, 25 years later, a lot of the ideas you were espousing in the 90s are now become much more common. And um, I think, did AD identify, no, I, I swear it might have been AD who said something like multigender or or did they say no gender? So now I'm, now I'm confusing myself. But it's very interesting. It's not It's not even just a one at multiple times or changing. Now people are saying well, you can have multiple. Wow. Now, of course, you're heading off to Germany in January for six months. So the, the, the project, I'm going to be writing up stuff while I'm in Germany. But a lot of the research side interviews are going to be on hold while I'm in Germany. But I will continue them when I come back. I will continue them. Well, we'll have to have <laughs> you back on the show when you do because your project is truly awesome. No, Ross, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Chain with Noah Reisman about their amazing research about the history of the trans community here in Australia. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. Here are the Dandy Warhols.
In your face on 3CR with James. Well, I'm absolutely delighted that gay Saudi asylum seeker Sultan has been released from detention in New South Wales. And earlier today, I had the honour of speaking with him again. Sultan, congratulations on your release. How does it feel? Oh my goodness, it feels like we just woke up from this nightmare and that we just woke up on the flight and arrived in Australia. And what did it feel like to be reunited with Nassar? Oh my gosh, it was just, uh, it was amazing. I mean, I spent four days without him and not exactly knowing, you know, when the next time we would be reunited. I'm sorry, I'm on the metro, so you're going to hear some some sounds in the background. Just to have him, uh, just to be together again, I mean, the, the real fear is that between that Friday and the, and the, and the Tuesday when, in which I was released, Minister uh, Coleman took, went on personal leave. And then at the same time, another uh, minister, Minister Touch, was coming in. The concern was that my paperwork was lost in the middle and that it was a very distinct possibility that I would be in detention until uh, sorry, February following the holidays. Wow. So you've got a bridging visa. When will your asylum matter be settled? 
Well, our asylum uh, hearing uh, was already conducted uh, while uh, my partner was at uh, Villawood. It was conducted there over the phone, which is really very unusual because usually they do those things in person. And in my case, we have a joint application in, and uh, the immigration department said that they didn't actually need to interview me because it seems that my case was so solid. Now, my lawyer, Allison uh, Battison from Human Rights for All, she says that uh, you cannot be denied a, um, uh, an asylum uh, claim without an interview, but it can be approved without an interview. So it's all looking very, very promising. In fact, just this afternoon, we received uh, letters from the uh, Immigration Department saying that our uh, asylum application is progressing and that they needed uh, police clearance letters from the country that we've lived at for, uh, for 10 years, sorry, for 12 months over the past 10 years. So that's just a couple of countries. So we have to do those. And then um, well, hopefully we'll have our bridging visas within a very short space of time. Sorry, not the bridging visas, I mean. The asylum applications uh, should be approved within a very short space of time, probably a couple of months. You mentioned some other countries. Which ones are they? The UAE and Turkey. I spent a little bit of time in uh, Turkey in 2013, about a year there. And also, uh, my partner and I, we spent about uh, four years in the United Arab Emirates. So we got to get clearance letters from them. And how has the situation worked out with, uh, with housing? Everybody in the community, the LGBT community, and just the regular uh, Australians uh, have really come around and really offered us uh, places to live and stay, including uh, a place uh, to stay, a house in Bondi over the New Year period. So that's going to be very exciting. I mean, we've seen Bondi on TV, you know, Bondi Beach, Bondi Vets, and everything about Bondi seems so exciting that uh, we're hoping to to spend a little bit of time uh, with the beach. You know, in Australia, the seasons are kind of changed from the northern hemisphere. So it's going to be nice to have an extended summer this year. Fantastic. Look, congratulations. Uh, Send our best to Nassar, and thank you so much for talking to us today on 3CR. And thank you, 3CR. I mean, uh, you also played a major part in getting us released because people heard that I would continue to be in detention while my partner was uh, was out, and it outraged so many listeners that some actually started petitioning and working hard to make that extra effort to get us out. Fantastic. Look, that's great feedback, and I hope to talk again. I do too. Thanks so much. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye. Long hot summer. I am out of here. Jacob's up next for the Friday rave. Have an awesome Christmas, everybody. I will be back next week on In Your Face with the music show. Taking us out are Barbara Streisand and Judy Garland. And yeah, I'll catch you next week. Forget your trouble. Happy days. Come on, get happy. I hear again a above a clear shout hallelujah so let's sing a song come on and have me cheer again 
Face would like to thank Thornhaber Health for their financial support of this program. Thornhaber Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex, and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thornhaber Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.